0: From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Razazan. Khalil Bandib is away. Hanin Zouabi is a Palestinian member of the Israeli Knesset or Parliament. She is known for her vocal criticism of Israel and its policies against Palestinians.
1: If you are a democracy, if you are not afraid from democracy and equality, so why you are implementing and passing these racist laws? And if you are so loyal and believe that you have a dream of a Jewish, pure Jewish state, so admit that you cannot be a democracy.
0: Voices of the Middle East and North Africa contributor Mira Nabulsi speaks with Hanin Zoabi about what it means to be a Palestinian in the Israeli Knesset and her efforts to expose what she calls the myth of Israeli democracy. Later in the program, we talk about the critically acclaimed production, Love, Bombs, and Apples. We speak with Iraqi-British playwright Hassan Abdul Razak, the play's British actor Asaf Khan, who portrays four different characters from Palestine, Pakistan, Bradford, and New York, and Evren Ochkin of Golden Thread Productions, the theater company, presenting the show in the Bay Area. All this coming up on this week's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us. Hanin Zoabi is a Palestinian member of the Israeli Knesset, and she is known for her vocal criticism of Israel and its policies against Palestinians. In 2010, Zoabi was arrested and held by Israeli authorities and faced an aggressive wave of attacks for her participation in the Gaza flotilla. Israeli politicians called for her disqualification from her role as a member of parliament and for stripping her Israeli citizenship. She also received death threats. Vumina's Mira Nabulsi sat down with Hanin Zoabi and spoke with her, about what it means to be a Palestinian in the Israeli Knesset, as well as the ongoing occupation of Palestine and the Israeli political culture that normalizes the occupation.
1: Talking personally, it's an environment of alienation. It is to be within a parliament, which try to remind you that you don't belong to this homeland, it is not your homeland, a place which tries always to rewrite your history and identity, to say that maybe you are a guest in best cases and you are an obstacle for the pure Jewish state, which as a function must guarantee privileges to the Jews on the expense of the Palestinians, although I am an indigenous people. And although this hostile environment. I have the feeling of being indigenous. I have the feeling Israel could not delete, and this is why the hostility and the anger towards us as Palestinians, not just inside the Knesset, but outside, that Israel couldn't delete our history. Israel really, even if we haven't the ability to study, we are not allowed to study our history in our Arab schools. We should study the Jewish history and even maybe a distorted history of the Jewish people, how they are connected to this homeland, how they return back to an empty land. We have no recognition in the textbooks of the Israeli schools, which the Jewish Israelis study and learn while they are children. The concept that Israel, which immigrates to me, and we should remember, we didn't immigrate to Israel. It was Israel who immigrated to us. So this feeling of dignity, of our pride as indigenous people, of our pride that we are struggling for a democracy, Israel cannot break and cannot really destroy the myth that Israel came to an empty land and that they have a dream to build their own pure ethnic Jewish state is still part of the psychological Mind of the Israeli society, the reality of me as Palestinian, being in Palestine in nineteen forty-eight. The reality, the fact that Israel expelled eighty-five percent of my people in nineteen forty-eight. What is uh, known to be as the Nakba, which is the Palestinian catastrophe. The fact that Israel has destroyed more than five hundred seventy Palestinian villages and cities in nineteen forty-eight, is not really disturbing this false consciousness and this false uh, distortion of reality within the Israeli uh, society. And the concept was that those whom Israel didn't expel in 1948 will be tamed by citizenship. So citizenship for us was a strategy of taming us, of rewriting our geography because when confiscating Israel has changed the name from Arabic name to Jewish ancient names and even sometimes very, very similar to the Arabic name. So the strategy is to tame us and you are entering a Knesset, a building which is the symbol of this ideology actually a colonialist ideology towards you and you must struggle, you must struggle for democracy and you must see your struggle with the Palestinians perceive our struggle as part of our national struggle. It is not just a civic struggle. It is not just a struggle for civic rights. It's also a struggle for identity national rights. And also, it's very important to realize that it is a struggle to decolonize the state because there is no way to have a Jewish state which is a democratic state. This is the contradiction. This is the problem. Mm -hmm. Jewish state cannot be a democratic state because the only meaning of Jewish state is to guarantee privileges to the Jews on the expense of the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And it is so clear from analyzing the legal Israeli system, the Israeli policies, the psychology of the society, this means Jewish society, that they came in order to replace us, not to live with us. Our struggle is to give a vision how we can live together, but of course, not within a racist state. This means not within a Jewish state.
2: In your position as a member of the Knesset, do you feel like you have the same power that Jewish Israelis uh, who are in the Knesset have?
1: Actually, I don't have any power to practically now change the system. Yes, I have the power... To promote our vision and it is a political power. We are promoting this vision. We are raising consciousness about the racism, about the Israeli perceiving itself as a colonialist and treating the Palestinians within Israel as invaders. They actually, this is what they tell us in the Knesset when we ask them why you confiscate our land. You already confiscated percent of our land. You already even not just in nineteen forty eight. And I will just read for you a paragraph which Pengurion mentioned about the robbery of the Palestinian ownership in nineteen forty eight. The plunder and looting of Palestinian homes, farms, plantations, banks, cars, ports, railroads, schools, hospitals, trucks, tractors, during the Nakba, during 1948 war, were a crime committed. Of course, this is not what Ben Gurion said, but this is mm-hmm. actually a crime committed not only by the state, but also by the common Israelis. So it is part of the culture of the society, really to see me mm-hmm. not as indigenous, even not as normal a uh, citizen. What Ben Gurion said about this robbery, himself, he was surprised, as you can understand from this paragraph, he was surprised by this large mass robbery uh, of Palestinian properties. He said in a cabinet meeting, the only thing that surprised me and surprised me bitterly was the discovery of such moral failings among us, the Jews, which I had never suspected. I mean, the mass robbery in which all parts of the Jewish population participated. And we are talking about uh, Ben-Gurion who said, any land we uh, steal from the Palestinian will be our land. Maybe we don't have the power, the real power to change the laws. In Israel, there are 95 racist laws. We didn't have the power. We are 13 Knesset members uh, within the joint list out of 120 Knesset members. The member, joint Arab list. The joint Arab list, exactly. Out of 120. So we are a minority. All of the Israeli party are Zionist parties. There is no even one anti-Zionist party within the Knesset. So we are in the minority. We couldn't stop passing more than 95 racist laws. Laws which legitimate apartheid. Laws which prevent Palestinians from living within uh, more than 500 uh, community villages. Yeah. We don't have the strength, but at least to be vocal, mm-hmm. to give voice to the victim, to reveal and talk about this racism, I think it is a very, very important political role. Until now, we do this. Till Israel passed law, amke um, expulsion law? By this MK expulsion law, 90 Knesset members, Israeli Knesset members, can expel permanently a Knesset member from the Knesset. Now I have been elected from half a million Palestinians, but easily 90 Knesset members can change the results of the election. This means the real elections takes place within the, the Knesset. Knesset. I have been temporarily suspended five times. There is also an ethical committee. The last time was in March, and this will be another week in May. We are in a recession, and uh, there is another week. The first one was after Marmara. Six months, four months, six months, four months, and then uh, two months, and then a week. So for five times, the Ethical Committee of the Knesset has suspended me just because of expressing my political attitudes, expressing the oppressing of the, the Israelis, the racism of the Israeli state and trying to struggle for equality for all and for a normal state. This is my vision. Mm-hmm. The vision of my party, National Democratic, is simply not a racist Jewish state, but a state for all the citizens. Mm-hmm.
2: I want to bring it back a little bit to the US. In January, Vice President Mike Pence addressed the Israeli Knesset. And this was the first time a US Vice President addresses the Knesset. You and other Palestinian members of the Knesset interrupted his speech in protest and held signs saying Jerusalem is the capital of Palestine. Of course, uh, Israeli security came in and forcefully removed you and other members outside of the session. Why did you decide to stay? Why did you not boycott? uh Mike Pence's address. We know that the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah, for example, decided to boycott Pence, but you guys decided to stay. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, actually, no, we decided to boycott. But our plan was to uh, stand up before he starts to talk, hold these signs, Jerusalem is the capital of Palestine, and then immediately to leave the whole. So we didn't plan to stay listening to him, of course. Mm -hmm. But instead of pie-cutting without any statement, instead of pie-cutting without anyone noticing that there are 13 M.K.s or 13 empty chairs, we want to have our statement. We want to send him a message that he is not welcomed in Palestine and his message of moving the capital Mm -hmm. and the U.S. policy is violated of the international law and violation of the Palestinian uh, rights. So this was the plan. But as you said immediately, mm-hmm. the Israeli security forces of the Knesset, they didn't even let us have this message because we said to them we would just send a message and leave immediately. But they falsely wanted to have the signs uh, removed uh, in order not to send the message. But fortunately, we send our message.
2: And one of the things that Pence emphasized was the bond between Israel and the U.S. He described this bond as, quote, woven together in the hearts of our people, uh, unquote. <laughs> Can we talk about the alliance that we see between the current Israeli government and the Trump administration? The Karen administration announced that the U.S. embassy will be moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem on May 15th to coincide with Israel's 70th anniversary, which Palestinians mark as their Nakba Or catastrophe so talk to us a little bit about this alliance between the two governments how do you view it and how do you talk about it specifically now during this tour that you're doing in the US
1: actually this special alliance helps the Palestinians convey their message because you are talking about a president whose political view is so clear racist view right-wing views against minority, against equality, against the human rights, against even the normal, standard, liberal values mm-hmm. of a lot of, I would say, maybe most of the Americans. Actually, and this special alliance may clarify for the American citizens the essence and the aims of the Netanyahu government and even the policies of Israel as such, as the State. This will convey a message that if a racist president is so close to a state, this means that there is also a common values, right wing values, and liberal values, which really is the common thing between the two sides. Mm-hmm. And As the Americans themselves, I think now, suffering from the policies of Trump, and I hope that they will not suffer more, but I'm sure and they are sure that continuing with these policies of Trump, America will not be more liberal, will not be more strong, will not be uh, more free, and it will not implement policies of uh, equality and rights uh, within the world. But it is not the special alliance between uh, Trump and Netanyahu. It's actually a very odd alliance between the USA government and all of the Israeli government. Actually, it is just with this support of the USA, which Israel can continue its hostile and violent policies toward the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. I don't think that any normal American citizen accept the fact that the USA has used its veto in order not to have an investigation committee regarding the Israelis killing 33 Palestinians within March of Return Mm -hmm. and snipers. And Israel itself has admitted that she is relying its policies to oppress this civilian and peaceful uh, struggle on snipers, which from a far distance shoot people whom even they don't know, they don't know whom who they are shooting, they don't know. They just know that they shoot. They have a direct order to shoot and kill Palestinians. I don't think that any American citizen agree with his own taxes on behalf of his name to have a government which really directly and strongly and blindly support this act of killing Palestinians, the act of putting two million Palestinians into the biggest jail, the biggest ghetto in the world, expanding settlements. Oppressing the Palestinians in the West Bank, Judaizing uh, Jerusalem, and being racist toward the Palestinian citizens within Israel, which we are now eighteen percent of the mm-hmm. society. Just to mention some statistics. We are one million two hundred thousand within eight million and a half in Israel. So even the US government and not just Trump's government, to be honest and to be yeah, accurate, a, even in Obama point, that it's not it unprecedented. Exactly, it is not a president uh, It is not a president strategy and policy. It is American policy to have a strategical alliance and support for a state which is violating the international law systematically, which oppresses the Palestinians systematically. And then the Americans start to wonder why the Arab nations and the Arab people are hostile towards its policies. They are not hostile. They are just reacting in a very normal way. The USA strategy as a state is so hostile to the people in the Middle East, mm-hmm. so hostile to their rights. You can see now what American army and the American state has did to Iraq. And you can see uh, the silence and the way the U.S.A. supports all the dictatorship in the regions. If you are a democratic state, why you are supporting dictatorship like Sisi in Egypt? And you know that these two regimes oppress their people, and you know that they don't represent the will of their people the Arab Spring sent a very clear message of democracy of course we are I am against also the intervention the u.s. intervention in Syria it is the people the revolution of the people which seeks justice equality and as a Palestinian my struggle is based upon justice and upon equality and upon the unity of the Arab world Mm -hmm. we are supporting a strong Arab world, strong states, which means strong people, not strong regimes, and not fascist and dictatorship regimes. It is so hostile, this strategy towards the Arab people and especially towards the Palestinians. It is with the USA military support that Israel kills a Palestinian every 3.6 days according to amnesty. Mm -hmm. Killing, pumping Gaza, pumping and killing 500 children in Gaza within the siege. The USA even preventing with its veto, verbal condemnations toward violent and killing policies of Israeli. Israeli plans fly over Gaza, continuously pumping Gaza. Mm -hmm. 500 children, as I said, have been killed before a few years or a massive a uh, pumping 75% of Gaza children suffer from anemia high unemployment rates and extreme poverty and dependency on uh, charities 95% of the water is unsafe to drink in Gaza just two till four hours of uh, electricity and 70% of the population is under poverty line so this is the situation when you are not condemning even supporting military support financially and Legal support. Mm -hmm. And this is what is so important. The condemnation of the U.S. is not enough, but it at least sent a very clear message that Israel cannot be above the international law. And Israel, 70 years from now, since 1948, since the establishment of the state, is treated as if it is above the international law. So we are not spending about policies there and policies here, violation once a while. No, we are talking about policies which is based on violation. A definition, as I said, of a state which is contradict a democracy.
2: I want to go back to some uh, statements that you made in the talk you gave in San Francisco a few days ago. You said that Israel views Palestinians, especially those living inside Israel, who are by law citizens like yourself, Israel views them as an obstacle to the Jewish state and that Israel's policies are not just part of a racist project, but of a settler colonial project. Can you explain the difference
1: and elaborate on that a little bit? Zionists didn't came to my homeland in order to live with me. They came in order to replace me. They viewed the land. They convinced themselves that the land is empty. And they actually implemented this false statement. They conducted an ethnic cleansing to the Palestinians in 1948, expelling 85% of the Palestinians. I am one who remained, whom Israel didn't expel. And maybe Israel is now angry because we didn't thank her. We the Palestinians whom Israel didn't expel, we didn't thank her every day. The idea of a Jewish state was based upon a majority and the Jews were not, Zionists were not majority in 1948 so first of all it implemented ethnic cleansing in order to be a majority second of all it tried as I said to you to confiscate the land, the robbery that I talked about Mm -hmm. till now Israel has confiscated in order to implement the concept of Jewish state, of privileges of controlling the land controlling the land is fair till now Israel has continued to confiscate my land, 80 36% 6% Israel has confiscated of the 48 region uh-huh. which is 78% of the hist- historic so what's Palestine what's now Israel, of the, what's that's now now Israel? That of the land what's now Israel Israel has confiscated most of the land, of the Palestinians, to show you how they implemented settler colonialists, to take the land, to develop it just for the Jews, and to have the Palestinians living with minimum land. So Zionism is maximum land of the Palestinians with minimum Palestinians. And now by minimum, they made the ethnic cleansing, and we shifted from majority to to minority. Israel legally develops seven, this means by their legal laws, by their laws of the majority, because the only meaning of democracy in Israel is the role of majority, the tyranny of majority. Israel doesn't perceive democracy as equality. And this is why we have 95 racist laws, because as long as you have a majority, the majority are Zionist, you can do anything. You can pass any, any law in the Knesset because also Israel has no constitution. Israel has no basic laws which guarantee equality. So lacking a constitution, lacking a basic laws which guarantee freedom, which guarantee equality and having the definition of a Jewish state in order to guarantee privileges and as an outcome of not accepting equality as part of the definition of the state, enable Israel to have a more than 10 laws regarding how to develop cities and villages exclusively for the use of the Jewish people. So this is a settler colonialism. This is not just an undemocratic state. It's a state. And this is why they perceive the Palestinians as obstacle, our struggle as obstacle to the Jewish state. Yes, because we are struggling against racism. I cannot accept a Jewish state within my homeland. I didn't immigrated to Israel. I didn't choose to have even Israeli citizenship. Israel has imposed this citizenship mm-hmm. upon us in order to be accepted as a member in the U.S.
2: I don't know if you want to say more about that, but I was going to also talk about the issue of fascism, because in that talk that you gave in San Francisco, you also mentioned how Israel uh, or observers within Israel are now talking about how Israel is moving towards being a fascist state or in a fascist situation. In addition to everything you already explained about Israeli policies, what does that exactly look
1: like, the fascist situation uh, or the fascist laws? Actually, that turning from a racist situation to a semi-fascist situation, you can realize this from laws which legalize apartheid and from loyalty laws. In Israel, Mm -hmm. the concept of loyalty is not to respect values of freedom. The concept of loyalty is to accept and be loyal actually to racism. To be loyal to the oppressor, to be loyal to this ideology, to the ideology of giving privileges to the Jews on the expense of the Palestinians. And perhaps you sorry, have, you
2: know, we see how there's a contradiction between being a democracy and Jewish at the ex- same
1: time. Exactly, this is all what we are saying. You cannot, you can define yourself as a Jewish and democracy, but you cannot be really a Jewish and democracy. Mm-hmm. And if you are a democracy, so why not to be simply state for all of the citizens? This is the vision we are trying to promote. This is our struggle to have a state to all the citizens. If you are a democracy, if you are not afraid from democracy and equality, so why you are implementing and passing these racist laws? And if you are so loyal and believe that you have a dream of a Jewish, pure Jewish state, so admit that you cannot be a democracy. And admit that you must be an apartheid state and a racist state and a colonialist because I am indigenous people and I didn't immigrate. You came to me. You immigrated to me. Now you have a set of loyalty laws which really try to oppress, even interfere with the thinking and with the emotions of the citizens. It is not an act. We are a strategic threat. If we Believe in other values other than Jewish state and racism We start within Israel to be perceived as Palestinians not just the Palestinians even the very tiny left-wing anti-zionist or even Zionist within Israel which say that we disagree with this concept Loyalty laws you can see that the state educational Bill it is just in process It is uh, a new law, a new law ban. On. Yeah, which ban educational activities that discourage military service. You don't have even a right within Israel, even if you are a Jewish organization. And by semi-fascist situation, I am referring also to the situation where the state started to persecute Israeli organization, mm-hmm. Jewish Israeli activists, Jewish Israeli like breaking the silence organization, those, who refuse to those serve in the army. even breaking the silence that don't refuse to serve in the army. This is a misleading Mm-hmm. They just are talking about the crimes which the Israeli army is conducting. They didn't say don't serve in the army. They And I disagree with them mm-hmm. because, of course, I am again serving in a military army, occupation army. They are just trying to raise awareness about the crimes, telling about their own experience. And Israel has this special law in order to prevent this organization from entering the schools to talk about about the army. Actually this law has been passed, but this one cultural loyalty bill under debate in the Knesset and this bill requires cultural institutions and artists even again, Israeli Jewish artists seeking state funding to declare their loyalty to the state of Israel as a Jewish state
2: before they get the funding before
1: they get the funding. So if you are Israeli artist talking about violation of Israel, talking about the freedom, the rights of the Palestinians, you are not allowed and you pay taxes. You are not allowed to talk about that. So this is a fascist meaning of loyalty because it is a loyalty to ideology. Mm-hmm. and. It is a fascist to say that the state is an ideological project which the citizen should be loyal to it without guaranteeing basic rights, equality. And in democracy, the state should serve the citizen, and the citizen should be in the center. And the state should guarantee equality, should guarantee freedom, should guarantee justice. And then there is a meaning to ask the citizen to be loyal. Without basic values of freedom, equality, and justice, you cannot ask me to be loyal, because Mm -hmm. then you will ask me to be loyal to oppression in terms of the perceptions
2: towards Israel and towards uh, Israeli politicians in the U.S. So there's this uh, widely held belief that I see and hear a lot in the U.S., especially in liberal circles, that Netanyahu is the bad guy, but that he's an exception and that he perhaps doesn't represent or define the Israeli society or the Israeli political forces as a whole. In fact, a recent poll by the Pew Research Center found that support of Israel is in decline among Democrats, even in the U.S., and that has a lot to do with Netanyahu himself. What do you say to that? Is Netanyahu an exception?
1: Actually, if Netanyahu is an exception, who would not been elected, he has been elected for the majority, by the majority. Mm -hmm. Until now, according to the all polls, Israeli polls, if he want to run for election again, even after the um, corruption,
2: yeah, the corruption cases, against, cases him.
1: against him, he will win. Mm-hmm. He is the only candidate so now. So you
2: think he's still so majority, popular.
1: These are the statistics. Mm-hmm. The statistics indicate this is not my analysis. And the majority of the Israelis will vote for him again. And according to all the statistics, there is a majority within the Israeli society which supports the right wing. And this majority is in a process of increasing, not decreasing. Mm -hmm. So researchers are indicating a gradual shift towards the right within the Israeli society since more than 15 years ago. The Israeli Institute for Democracy conduct a yearly poll for index of democracy Mm -hmm. and the index of democracy shows you how Netanyahu actually expressing majority within the Israeli Knesset. The alternative are not a real alternative. Because if Netanyahu doesn't talk about two states, also the Zionist camp. The opposition, the biggest party within the Israeli opposition, said that it is not the time to talk about two states. Mm -hmm. And if Netanyahu doesn't want to dismantle settlements and doesn't recognize that settlements are violation of international law, also the opposition in the Knesset, the Zionist opposition in the Knesset, doesn't recognize settlements as a violation of the law. And if Netanyahu said the siege, we should pump Gaza, All of the Israeli opposition support him in pumping Gaza, they supported the siege. They supported now, there is no critical voices even within the opposition to killing now 34 Palestinians whom Israel has killed. You will not hear any criticism from the opposition regarding the siege, Mm -hmm. regarding settlements, Judaizing Jerusalem, even not uh, recognizing the rights of the Palestinians to have a real, real sovereign state. Mm -hmm. So there is no real differences between Netanyahu the right wing and those who are not right wing. There is no real lift in Israel. And this is why Netanyahu is gaining more and more popularity. And this is why Netanyahu is really part of the system. It is not the exception. No, Netanyahu is not the exception. And this is why you can, the Democracy Index 2017 shows you that 44 within the Israeli society believe that uh, anyone who refuses to declare that Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people should lose the right to vote. So it is not just regarding this society is racist, not just regarding the uh, Palestinians in Gaza and in the West Bank. Okay, they will say we defend ourselves. First of all, you cannot defend yourself by putting two million Palestinians into a siege. And you cannot defend yourself by violating the international law, by oppressing, by killing. But even you are not defending yourself because you are not a democratic state. You don't believe also in democracy and equality. Just 11% of the Israeli society define democracy as equality. What do you think? Just 11, 11, according to 2017 index of democracy, 11 percent perceive democracy as equality. Mm -hmm. They think democracy is to give to the uh, Israeli Jew privileges, to be the master and to oppress the Palestinians and to demonize the Palestinians.
0: Hanin Zoabi is a Palestinian member of the Israeli Knesset. She spoke with Womina contributor Mira Nabulsi. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. A Palestinian actor learns there is more to English girls than pure sex appeal. A Pakistani-born terror suspect figures out what's wrong with his first novel. A British youth suspects all is not what it seems with his object of desire. And a New Yorker asks his girlfriend for a sexual favor at the worst possible time. The latest Bay Area Golden Thread Productions play, Love, Bombs, and Apples is the comic tale of four men, each from different parts of the globe, all experiencing a moment of revelation. Khalil Bendib spoke with the play's screenwriter, Hassan Abdul Razak, the play's actor, Asif Khan, and Golden Thread Productions director of marketing and new plays, Evren Ochekin.
3: Evren Ochekin, Asif Khan, Hassan Abdul Razak, Welcome to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. It's great to have you all with us today. Thanks for having us. I just wanted to first congratulate you guys on a brilliant production. I thought I I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very good. It's titled Love, Bombs and Apples. It's written by Hassan Abdelrazaq. Golden Thread keeps gifting us with these wonderful gems year after year, and this is one of them, definitely.
4: Thank you so much. It means a lot to hear that from you, actually, Cleo.
3: Thank you. So uh, let me start with you, Evren. When you introduced this play, "Love Bombs and Apples," you called it Hassan's first full-length piece. But in actuality, it felt like four separate mini plays in rapid succession, rather than one, albeit all related in theme. Mm-hmm. But because of your introduction, I kept expecting the characters to come back, clarify the concept, if you will.
4: The piece was written for Asif, and um, basically it was four monologues about four men from all over the globe, dealing with sex, politics, uh, immigration, all of the things, and above, like a lot of brown men and immigrant men might deal with in relation to the West, their lives in the West. And it's, I agree with you that the characters don't interact with each other, but I do feel like the four monologues do speak to each other in theme and. In style, Hassan has this beautiful, comedic, deep, intelligent writing. And I feel like even though the four characters are so different, both in writing and in Asif's playing of them, they are, I feel like those four characters together tell a very complete story.
3: Yeah, no, I felt uh, both in theme and, of course, in performance, being all played by the same wonderful actor, Asif Khan. To be completely honest, Asif, I had one small peeve, and I, I wonder how Hassan feels about it. Okay. The one thing that, that sounded a little strange to me as an Arabic speaker was the accent of the first character who's Palestinian. It didn't sound Arabic to me. I do not know how Hassan feels as an, another Arabic, and it's not really important because 95% of your audience couldn't tell, they're not Arabs, and to them it probably sounded very Arabic. But to me, it was like, wait a minute, it's almost like Urdu Arabic or something. Hassan, how did you feel about the Arabic accent? Did that uh, strike you the same way it struck me?
5: Well, Asif, I mean, worked on the accent by uh, introduced him to a Palestinian friend, and he worked as much as as one can with an accent. But also, Asif was very keen to have very bold choices. So as long as the thing felt in the right ballpark and distinct from the other accents, the Pakistani characters that are sort of two different types of Pakistani characters, one who has retained a kind of mother tongue accent and another one who's second generation from Bradford. So they have a very distinct accent. And then there is the, the fourth uh, monologue, which is somebody who has sort of a generic American accent. So yeah. the idea here was, was to really make bold choices to go for something that is striking and that is distinct from the others.
3: I like the other three accents, especially the last one. I I was confused by the time Asif reached that fourth monologue. I thought, oh, so he was born in this country. (laughs) He has no accent. It sounds like pure, generic American. And the one amazing thing about your performance is that you really became four different people, Hmm. four different races. You transformed like a chameleon at the end. I thought even the color of your hair changed because you convinced me so much that you were this white Jewish guy from mm. where? Brooklyn or somewhere? Mm. You looked like your regular white American mm. with your accent and all that.
6: The accent that I was doing for, we called, him, we called the character Imad, the Palestinian guy. Mm. So I had a few Palestinian friends that Hassan put me in touch with who I kind of listened to and asked them to record the voice and listened to quite a lot.
3: Yeah, well, maybe it's another Arab uh, dialect I'm not used to. But no, no, <laughs> it's, it's very particular. It. Though there <laughs> were
6: some people who there was actually he pointed out that he was very, very particular to that mm. Arab accent. And um, the guy I remember when I recorded him, he said um, that he was in a party of Arabs from different part of the Arab world, mm. and he heard a voice, an accent, a guy speaking, and he knew exactly where he came from.
3: Yeah, but that's it's, it's true in Arabic. If you're speaking in Arabic, 20 different guys will sound completely different. And you can tell where they come from according to their accent, mm. their dialect. Hassan, your roots are in Iraq. You were born in Prague. Speaking of accents, do you speak Czech or any Slavic languages? Or did you go uh, young enough to Great Britain and, uh, and grew up there?
5: Yeah no, my first language my parents told me was Czech. I was speaking Czech as a child, but I unfortunately I lost that uh, language. We moved from what was then called Czechoslovakia to Iraq, and I sort of spent my formative my childhood really years in Baghdad. Five years I spent in Baghdad. So uh, yeah no, the Czech Republic. Unfortunately, I don't have that that language uh, available to me. I know I know a few words, few rude words, and so on, but other mm-hmm. than that, no. <laughs>
3: said I especially enjoyed, I mean, I enjoyed the whole thing, but the fourth piece, sort of a modern Romeo and Juliet tale where you bring to life a young American Jew who finds himself torn between his love for JVP activists advocating for Palestinian rights and his own family who are vehement Zionists. Thank you for that brilliant piece. How did you come up with that idea?
5: Lots of things fell at the same time in play. So uh, we we were putting the show together with the first three monologues in 2014. And in 2014, uh, Gaza was being bombed again. The first monologue I wrote was in 2009, and also Gaza was being bombed. So it felt like it was worth revisiting the whole issue of Palestine and to create a kind of book and monologue that kind of chimes uh, with the first monologue. Um, So I knew I wanted to write about Palestine again, but I didn't know the exact angle But at the same time, uh, I was listening to lectures by uh, Norman Finkelstein on YouTube and also reading some article that was published in the uh, New York Review of Books about the generational difference between American Jews from the generation that uh, lived through the 1967 war and was uh, kind of saw Israel as an underdog and was very committed politically to Israel versus the more younger generations. That are forming different opinions because they see Israeli aggression on television and on Facebook and so on, so I thought that was something of interest to me, and at the same time, I was also interested in the polish of APAC and the issue of uh, censorship because again, with Norman Finkelstein, who 's a, a professor that was uh, very famous, a Jewish professor very famous for speaking for Palestinian rights, his uh, tenure got blocked by Alan Dershowitz, who's somebody who's very pro-Israel, who's written a book called The Case for Israel. And uh, they clashed on a radio show, and uh, things escalated, and Alan Dershowitz managed to block the tenure of, of Norman Finkelstein, or what least was instrumental in that happening. So, and there were other cases, mainly Palestinian scholars, whose uh, in America whose tenure were blocked or uh, or who were kind of threatened to lose their position, uh, and there were kind of campaigns against them. So I was aware that there's this whole kind of—I um, wouldn't go as far as to call it sort of McCarthyism, but it's kind of like— an element of censorship that was happening to academics who were uh, speaking up for Palestine. And I'd never seen a play about that or somebody tackling those issues. So all of these things, the bombing of Gaza, the generational difference, and the issue of the censorship, they all kind of coalesced in this, in this monologue. And it, just, it was kind of inspiring material to write to write that piece.
3: Yeah, I thought uh, your first piece on the difficulty of non-marital sex in Palestine or behind the apartheid wall, was both funny and poignant in that way. I think Woody Allen would be proud of this one, uh, one of his m- major themes. I think always of Woody Allen because one of my favorite writers and comedians. And this reminded me a little bit of existential juxtaposition of love and death. Was uh, Woody Allen one of your uh, influences by any chance?
5: Oh, I love Woody Allen absolutely yeah growing up, watching his movies and even some of his early stand up comedy and uh yeah absolutely he's a he's a hero of mine, yeah definitely. I just need to qualify that. Yeah. that not the dodgy sexual bits you know that's not part of the hero image for me, but other than that, you know other than the um the he's got himself into as a basically just as a creative person, yes uh, I think he's wonderful.
3: As you're saying, the fourth piece is kind of book ends nicely the the first one. In the first one, you have an Arab protagonist whose libido leads him to activism, sort of. In the last one, the fourth piece, you have a Jewish guy who was similarly guided by by his libido in a way to activism and and to consciousness. Those two actually were my favorites. They're kind of Freudian. I mean, looking at politics through the lens of sex, I, I find that very interesting. Uh, if I thought you did that very well, the, that whole uh, sexual drive.
5: Obviously, sex is a very universal thing. It's a concern for yeah. for all human beings. Mm-hmm. And it's also kind of an unusual, unexpected angle to enter into issues of politics the minute you start with something like that, you already disarm the audience to a certain extent, Mm. because that's not what they expect when when the thing is sort of said to be about Palestine or about something that's considered a heavy subject. So I think sex kind of lightens it all up. It, uh, it takes you on a different angle of of not what you're expecting. That, yeah. for me, as a writer, is the attraction of going through with with, with an angle like that, a bold, different angle,
6: yeah.
3: Yeah, it's, it both lightens it up, but at the same time, it deepens it. It's very deep. It's a deep way of looking at mm-hmm. things. If yeah, I was going to say
6: the same thing. Um, it's like it's a universal thing, sex. You know, mm-hmm. everybody can relate to it. So it's a very simple want that the character has he just wants to have sex so you just oh, everybody can kind of relate to that and he's frustrated and, uh, yeah he's frustrated and there's about a wall in like, front yeah, of him yeah. but if you say to someone who doesn't know about the palestine israel conflict doesn't know much about that then they might be a bit lost but you know that's the beauty with all of the four characters they all have a very simple desire the first guy just wants to have sex the second guy just wants to write a novel and be famous. The third guy just wants an iPhone, and the um, fourth guy just wants some peace between his girlfriend and his and dad. His family, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think
4: there's also this really wonderful absurdity to it all. You know what I mean? The what I love about this play, in again, both Hassan's writing and Asif's depiction of these characters, is we are given four men who are deeply imperfect. So what they want and the depth of their situation is in clash with each other. And I think that's where the brilliance of the piece comes, is that they are living in situations that are heightened politically, but they are not either sometimes smart enough or woke enough they're or in engaged they're enough. not in control. But they mm. don't even know they're not in control. They mm. still have the drive like they do or they go for that. And I think the absurdity that is found, the comedic absurdity that is found in that clash, in that juxtaposition, makes it really delicious.
3: Another juxtaposition that I thought was quite clever and refreshing, in your second short, uh, the second, second monologue, I like the parallel between the cop... And the art critic, <laughs> mm, mm. <laughs> where the the cop says, "No, no, no! This is not fiction. This is real." It, the the characters have no depth.
6: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: I thought that was very very funny.
6: It's one of my favorite bits actually.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> also very Allen-esque. There's one uh, piece that Woody Allen wrote. This ca- it's called "If the Impressionists Had Been Dentists," where he manages to bring a crazy parallel between what dentists do and the Impressionist painters. This is a little bit what Hassan did and you did, Asif, mm. with these words. You know, a cop is an art critic. He's saying, no, no, this is no fiction. I'm sorry. I, I know fiction. This is really a, a manual.
6: Yeah. Well, just playing against what you imagine, you do see him because I play him for a small few lines. But, you know, he's called Bronson and he's been described as this huge, huge man. But then... What you don't realise is that he actually knows about drama, and knows more than Sajid, and um, can criticise his his work, and actually becomes Sajid's mentor, right, in prison, and his uh, toughest critic, exactly, and who Sajid wants to prove to the most. Yeah, he can't write without his, his can't, editing and He's not happy until Bronson is happy with it. Right.
3: The reason it works is that on a deep level, yeah, it's true that art critics for artists, they feel a bit like the police. Hmm. Always worried, how are they going to come down on this? Are they really going to be mean? or Are they going to be lenient? Hmm. So it works on that level. It, it really seems like a, yeah. a good coupling, a good juxtaposition.
4: creates such a funny human interaction between two people that are put into an incredibly high-stakes International terrorism plot.
6: What
3: is your character? What is he doing?
6: Well, he's called um, Sajid Abdul 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 (laughs) (laughs) And he's a, a Pakistani man who's now moved to London He's been quite heavily influenced by his father, but he's very been into books reading and through his old experience of uh, not just living in uh, Pakistan, but he's he's lived in Saudi Arabia, he's decided that he he knows about the subject of terrorism, and he decides I'm going to write the best post-9/11 novel. I'm going to be the top writer on this subject, a fiction novel. But what he ends up writing is quite dull, and it's just it's flat. But yeah, it's full flat. Of, of real detail. Uh, it's full it's of very well researched real detail, but not not enough character. And when the police get hold of it, they mistake it to be a terror manual <laughs> and arrest him. And then when he gets sent to prison, that's where he does his best writing and his best ideas flow. And uh, he really wants to impress Bronson, the officer who interrogates him. Who becomes yeah, his editor that. In, yeah. in a sense. Yeah,
3: yeah. Asif, again, I thought you did a stellar job with each one of the four characters. It was amazing how you managed to transform so quickly between one and the other. Was there any of these four characters, these four monologues that you felt closer to somehow, maybe because of your past experience or that felt more natural to you?
6: Well, the third one is set in Bradford and he's from Bradford. He's completely different from who I am. But um, I know the landscape, I know the kind of vocal sound, I know those kind of characters that I've seen throughout my life from a young age and gone to school with people who are like that. (laughs) And not in terms of the subject matter of what he's talking about, but just the kind of like uh, very urban street Asian lads who are from Bradford, who live in the kind of Insular kind of Pakistani Muslim community in Bradford, so I know that character, I know that world, and also Sajid. I suppose I'm from of a Pakistani background. My parents are both born and brought up in Pakistan, so I know those. So it's probably those two really, those two that I can probably found easier to step into, and also it's it's a good shift from going from Sajid to the Apple guy, who we call Safi, because physically they're so different. So it's a good opportunity to make that change. So
3: Hassan you made in this third mini play you made the parallel between iPhone and high tech fetishism and organized religion arguing that the ads sound like the sermons uh, at the mosque uh, except sexier. Interesting side note Steve Jobs was from Syria. So Oh yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. That got, <laughs> I mean his father was bi- yeah, yeah, his yeah, biological yeah. father was Syrian. So this is the apple in the title, Love, Bombs, and Apples. Previous critiques have pointed out there's this theme that goes through all four monologues of the vulnerable male perspective you bring to this quartet of monologues, Hassan. The theme of humiliation runs through the monologues as a leitmotif. Humiliation, especially male humiliation, is a constant Middle East politics. Witness Israel-Palestine. And how it's so central to the dynamic of not only violence but humiliating violence always. As an Arab male yourself, Hassan, uh, why is it such a permanent feature in this Middle East context?
5: I guess just growing up, I was very aware of it. Um, the whole issue of Palestine, for example, is linked to the idea of being humiliated, of, of losing land and, and being humiliated by another country. So politically, that was just always something in the air, just kind of feeling, which I think some critics have described as kind of Arab malaise, or, and I think it's all tied in with this idea of of being humiliated. And, of course, from humiliation, terrible things can stand. Um, a lot of the ISIS guys who have been interviewed and who've written, uh, there's even one memoir I've read by a Tunisian guy who joined ISIS, that's often a theme that comes up again, that they sort of feel... Politically, they're from a region that is humiliated or something. So that is of interest to me because it can be a motivation for all sorts of action. And I think the Apple guy is the one that comes closest to potentially the most transgressive action. I mean, he is the one who's fantasizing about going off to join ISIS in Syria. And he just thinks that it would be an amazing life and a really cool life. And from the I read of the people who did join ISIS, that, that seems uh, sometimes is the case.
0: Love, Bombs, and Apples run through May 6th at Potrero Stage, located at 1695 18th Street in San Francisco. For more information and ticket reservation, please visit goldenthread.org. That's goldenthread.org. You can hear the full interviews from this week's program on Voices of the Middle East and North Africa iTunes podcast page or you can link to it through our twitter page at vomina underscore radio from pacifica radio this is voices of the middle east and north africa
3: That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in
0: Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.